0: Hello and welcome to Accelerate. I am looking forward to talking with my guest today. Joining me is Glenn Matson. Glenn is president of Matson Enterprise, a Sandler training consulting and training firm specializing in sales and management, productivity and effectiveness. Glenn, welcome to Accelerate.
1: Thanks, Andy. Really appreciate it. look forward to hopefully giving some great insight to your audience.
0: I'm sure you will. So, please just take a minute, introduce yourself. How how did you get your start in sales, for instance?
1: Uh, Oddly enough, I'm one of those stories that I started selling when I was actually young. I've been self-employed my entire life, doing the old, starting off when I grew up in the northeast with uh, going out and shoveling driveways that turned into a, a different type of business. But that business is where I would speak with adults and do more labor-type work that led into, in a very successful business, that led into me being a client of Sandler. And um, in my early 20s, I had a real good business and it was very doing very, very well. And I was part of their Black Belt training group. And I figured that I didn't want to be what I was doing for the rest of my life. And the, the money was fantastic. I decided to sell my business and go in into the most successful franchise that Sandler has because we're a franchise network. Mm-hmm. And I find myself thinking I never really knew what I was doing until I figured out how to sell it and train it. And that led into me to actually using Sandler's methodologies to help me become, knock on wood over time, one of the top guys in the world for Sandler.
0: So lots of different methodologies out there, sales training mm-hmm. methodologies and so on. So what, what what sets Sandler apart? What's Sandler's method? What's their philosophy?
1: Well, I think two things or three things big picture. Um, Sandler, by footprint, has the most a number of offices around the country and around the world. So by footprint, we're the largest training company in the world. And we're also the most recognized in terms of awards. And the awards we win are in three different areas. It's sales, management, leadership. And the thing I think that helps us win those awards, especially in the sales side, Andy, is that people, unfortunately, aren't selling the way people actually buy. People are taught to sell the way they justify their decisions. So, one of the unique things that helps us really create a massive ROI in our client base is that we help people understand the psychology behind selling and the fact that people need to have an emotional driver behind the purchase. They need to have the capacity to understand this is the salespeople mm-hmm. through mutual discovery is why is that prospect, lack of a better word, what's there, what we'll call emotional drivers. And the emotional drivers that cause people to take action is either negative or positive, so we call it pain or gain. So we're really the innovators, the first ones that came out and said, hey, it's not features and benefits. It's not you showing up and throwing up and telling them how great you are or what you can do or how fast you can deliver something or how price sensitive your product is. Because it's it's a hope. When you start talking about features and benefits, features and benefits sell to the mind, which is the justification piece. And people miss the core reasons on why people buy. So if you throw a bunch of benefits at someone, what you're doing is you're hoping, or worst case, is you're assuming that the issues those benefits solve are what your problems that your clients have or your prospects have.
0: Yeah, I mean, people make, as I like to say, and I certainly did not originate this, but people make emotional decisions for logical reasons.
1: Yes. Right. So one of our mainstays is people buy emotionally and they justify it intellectually. It's one of our selling rules.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's a huge differential. So when we go in, we do so we teach people? Just, I'm, sorry, uh, teach. I'm sorry, just jump yeah. in. But
0: that so that's different than what you know Miller Hyman or anybody else focused their methodology. Yeah, their methodology,
1: and it's all great stuff. I mean, honestly, if you use any system, it it works. We just want it to work better, faster, and easier. Um, So when we spend our time, we spend an enormous amount of time on the qualification phase. And Features and benefits, throwing out RFPs, doing quotes, um, doing proposals without clearly identifying what's really going on, uh, in our mind, is ridiculous. I mean, why would you do a proposal and find out that it has to go up the corporate ladder? Well, you should have known that beforehand. Why would you do a quote unless they're ready to buy if they're just trying to figure out if we want to leave the vendor that we're with? That's not done based on a quote. That's based on, on professional selling. So Most times when we go into organizations, we find that they're wasting an awful lot of time in spending an enormous amount of resources chasing stuff that they never should have even had an open conversation with regards to. Or if they did the right qualifications, they could have closed it months before and at the right price points.
0: So what are sort of the the keys in the Sandler methodology for qualification? Because I I I absolutely agree that, that the number one problem with so many companies is yeah, they spend an inordinate amount of time selling to prospects who are never gonna buy. Yep. So right. so in your methodology, in the Sandler methodology, what what do they do in terms of qualification to help disqualify the people they shouldn't be speaking with?
1: Sure, sure. So in in our world it's you know, to oversimplify it, we have three stages and within those stages there's steps. And you know, one is obviously building relationship, which we all know and then there's qualification, which we're going to talk about, and then really the closing piece. Inside the qualifying, it's in our mind, it's pain or gain. So what are the emotional drivers of the company? What are the emotional drivers of the individual you're talking about? And then from there is once we have an understanding of what their emotional drivers are, and of course I'm oversimplifying it because Mm -hmm. it's a lengthy conversation, Sure. we then have to have conversations about budget. And it's the willingness to invest to fix the pain. Do they have the ability to do so? And if so, what kind of impact will it have on their business or their market share or on their budgets, you know, internal budgets? And then the third piece we look at is really decision making and how do they make decisions inside that company to see if it makes sense to hire us or change vendors? And decision making really is about you know, who's involved in it, what does it look like, when do you wanna pull the trigger, how are you gonna make those type of decisions? It's a cast of characters. So when you look at larger account development, that's a lot of time and energy is spent there. And where it becomes very convoluted, Andy, a little bit is if you don't have the right training, is the pain changes based on decision makers. So for instance, I was on the phone call before you and I started to talk, and I was talking with a middle manager, and what he was telling me his emotional drivers were, and what the business drivers were, when I finally got the CEO on the telephone about an hour later, he and I were talking, and they were dramatically different. Now, yes, you could turn around and say that they were losing market share, and what they were doing wasn't working anymore. That was consistent. But the reason why and the impact of those things were entirely different based on the level of the individual. Sure. So If I didn't get the manager's pain on the table, he never would have introduced me to the CEO. When I talked to the CEO, what he gave me as his issues was obviously dramatically different than the manager's just because of perception.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, actually, that yeah, level has a lot to do with your perception. Absolutely, Zero. right?
1: <laughs> so, And then we have two other subsets to once we get past decision-making, which is proof of concept. And proof of concept really is, before we go and jump into the pool, why don't we put a toe in first? Let's take a look at the philosophies of the office, the tolerance of what they're expecting or looking for in a solution. So if you're looking for something I can't deliver, why would we continue through the process? So proof of concept is real important. And then lastly is getting on the same page about decision-making with what we call the ultimate contract question, which is, is hey, if we bring it to you and you don't like it, that's fine. We'll shake hands and part friends. No farm, no, no foul. And we're okay with a no. But if you love it, what are we going to do? And we want to make sure that all the parties are on the same page so that we mutually are beneficial in terms of the relationship and it's all mutually agreed upon. So if you and I are talking and we don't have any pain or you don't want to share it with me, you're not really qualified. If you do have pain but you have no ability to fund the solution, not necessarily qualified. If you have pain and you can fund it, now we have to talk about all the decision makers, what the process is, how to, who's involved in it, all the nuances. And obviously, uh, you know, when you're talking about larger account selling, you have a lot of players that are involved in it. It's pretty complex versus if you're just doing mom and pop or small businesses where it's you're really talking to one or two people, it's much easier.
0: Sure. So, interesting, you, know, you talk about the pain and gain. And yeah, there's a, a whole school of thought that says that you know, pain is really not a, an incentive to to make investments as much as gain is. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, do you, everything you were sort of talking about, sort of focused on the pain? Maybe that's just the examples you are given. But it seems to me that when I work with, with clients, and I'm not doing training like you are and so on, but when I do advising and we do deal deconstruction and so on, is, is understanding the gain always seems to be a more powerful motivator for ultimately making the change. Well,
1: it's interesting. There's, there's really four. The two motivators, pain and gain, also um, are within time periods, meaning that you have past and future. So you have past pain, future pain, past gains, and future gains. Now, when you say past gains, that's instant gratification, which is I want it fixed today because I want this as my outcome i.e. most of your boat sales, motorboats and those type of things are all done the first three or four weekends that it's nice out, right? So you're out and you say, this is fantastic I want to go get myself a boat. But when you talk to certain levels, Andy, like like if you're spending time with CEOs and owners of larger companies, gain is their mindset. The gain is, if we fix this, are we going to accomplish these three things, which is going to elevate the company to the next level? But if you also look at where people are today, and we need to fix these three things so we can do the next piece, then that's pain either today or pain in tomorrow. So the actual, between the two of them, the strongest motivator we have is pain. And in the hierarchy, if you want them in the order, getting rid of pain today is by far the strongest motivator we have. Getting pain, getting rid of pain for tomorrow is the second strongest. The third is instant gratification and the hardest to sell, not necessarily motivator, but the hardest to sell is future pleasure. So your skill set has to be dramatically different to sell future gain than fixing today's pain. But people will make faster decisions, better decisions, spend more money if they have to fix problems for today versus gains for tomorrow. But it does differentiate a little bit depending on who you're talking to and their personality styles.
0: Yeah, and it, it speaks a lot to the product type and so on. I mean, is yeah, you know, yeah. You may have you say, look, we sell this pretty complete system, and if we're going to focus on immediate pain resolution, then yeah, we may just do as you said before. As let's do a proof of concept. We're going to get our our foot in the door. We're going to do something small, relatively risk free. We're going to address this pain, but the big payoff. Is yes. the gain? Yes, because mm-hmm. to me, and certainly in my experience, I've sold, spent many years selling, <laughs> you know, multi-million-dollar type communication systems. Gain was always the driver. The ROI at the end of the day was always based on the gain, as opposed to pain resolution.
1: Yeah, and it's a fine line in that that environment of. If we get the gain, here's the ROI. If we get the gain, here's a market share. If you look at it, the other flip side is if we don't do it, we're going to lose market share, which is gain, which is the pain piece. And, you know, the gain always is your return on investment and your growth and et cetera and market share. Yeah. But if you don't do it, what's going to happen? And that's where the, the pain piece comes in. So many people, when they look at gain in their mind, what they're doing is they're taking the right hand, which is your gain, you're taking the left hand, which is the pain if you don't do it, and they combine the two of them and it becomes a hell of a motivator.
0: Yeah, it's just the flip side of the coin. Yes. All right. Yes. Good. So, okay. So we understand Sandler. That's great. Um, let's talk about sales training. And sort of as an industry, because it's certainly an industry in transition in many respects. I mean, it's we still need sales training, I mean, that part's not going away, but gosh, I'm sure you see this a lot sort of negative that's written about sales training in terms of classroom training is ineffective, millennials don't learn that way, content's outdated, they don't retain anything, CEOs don't see the ROI, blah 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 blah. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, digital training is you know arriving at full speed, we've so. What do you see start happening, maybe the two things, two or three significant trends you see happening in the sales training industry and how that's going to impact the business-to-business sales environment? Sure,
1: sure. Well, w- w- one is more, I would say, in a global standpoint, is that you know I believe that sales training doesn't work either, right? which is an odd thing for to say for someone who's in sales training. Um Most sales training, unfortunately, when you look at how we learn and how we have to develop skill sets, we need to become aware of why we're doing it. We need to have the knowledge of how to do it. And then we have to apply those two things consistently over time to develop a skill set. And where most training falls off the radar screen is the application piece. And when we look at training...
0: Application to the real world.
1: Yes, absolutely. Right. So when we look at training... We look at it three different viewpoints. It's the tactics and strategies to be successful. And then are you doing enough of the behavior that you need to do to get in front of those type of people you need to get in front of. And then lastly is the attitude. So one of the reasons we get such a huge rate of return for our clients when they spend money is One is we actually teach all three. So, Annie, if I start to talk to you about how to do um, you know, account penetration or how to bring in new accounts, we can spend all day on the easy tactics and strategies of what to say on the telephone. But if you have a massive need for approval, fear of rejection, phone procrastination, any of those things pop up in your head, you're never going to utilize the training. So more times than not, the reason it doesn't stick is they're training the awareness and the knowledge, but they're now never really affixing what holds them back from applying it in their real world situations. So, big picture, do I think most training doesn't work? Yeah, I don't. I don't think it works very well because they're not training the way people need to learn. Is the first thing. The other piece so is how, that.
0: So how are you addressing yeah, that? In... Well.
1: You know, Again, that's one of the unique differentials that make us as successful as we are, is that when we do do training, if we are going to do technique training, we have to bleed it into the behavior and the attitudes. Because if I show you how to do something... You and I may have the self-esteem, we may have the confidence, we may have very little need for approval, which is fear of rejection, which is wimping out, right? We, you and I may be okay with our money concept, which is if the deal is $300,000, we are great at it, but all of a sudden it's $3 million and we're literally having a kinetic fit inside, we're, we're stressed out, we're afraid to lose a deal we don't even have yet. So all of a sudden, we don't use the tactics and strategies. So it's not a bad training program, but unfortunately, they're not trained the right way. And training doesn't work unless you change people. and Which, that's where re- which really requires, really attitudinal
0: piece. requires reinforcement.
1: Yes. So if you said to us, what is the three drivers that make Sandler successful, it would be the pain. right? We teach people to sell the way they buy. We also come in and fix the broken records or the attitudinal piece. And then lastly is we're really one of the only and surely the first one to do reinforcement training. So we don't come in for a day and just train you and leave. It's not going to work. So people have to go out, try it, and come back, learn from it, get beaten up a little bit, go back out again, get reinforced, come back in again. So reinforcement training by far is significantly a better rate of return. But if you add all three of them together, it's great. So, you know, based on the first question you had, is, is that I would turn around and say that the training, first of all, needs to address not just competencies of how to and what to do. You have to make sure and instill, will they do it? Not can they. And a lot of companies spend an awful lot of money on teaching their people how to do it. But they've never addressed, will they do it?
0: Well, it seems like there's another word that's missing that I see in in training. Oftentimes, not just relegated purely to sales training, but it does certainly exist there. Is yeah, I mean you're right. They focus too much on the how. They miss the why. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. to me, this is the critical part that's that's overlooked so much. Is is you want to get people to change behaviors? They need to understand why. (laughs) Why this is important (laughs) to do. Yeah. And. I would say 90% plus of the skills training I see in sales these days is all about technique in the absence of context. Yes.
1: In the absence of basically your head, heart, and your gut. Right. So knowing how to do it doesn't mean I'm going to do it. So I have to make sure the key ingredients will teach me and help me overcome those bravery issues to utilize what's being taught. And that's again why I think most training doesn't work is they don't have the motivation, they don't have the right bravery issues and commitment to excellence, which helps them drive the utilization. And most CEOs have those things. Most executives have that drive. So what puzzles them is, we'll just teach them how to do it and they'll do it. And and that's not that how it works. And if Because if they had those drivers, they'd be sitting in your chair. Right? Yeah, well, I think be, that's
0: one of the things yeah. that you know, based on the reading I've done that actually our, our military, which are great learning and teaching institutions, do is, is people tend to think of being sort of these, you know, command and control, but they teach, they teach the why. Yes, Because then when people have to apply it and sometimes uh, employ some sort of individual initiative, they're able to do that because they understand why they were doing it mm-hmm. and what the objectives are. So how, how, do you, how do you incorporate that into your training?
1: Well, when we take a look at it, is it, is depending on the situation, so for instance, I had a phone call yesterday with someone and we're going through and, and he's a rainmaker himself, Andy, and he's created a very uh, profitable practice and business. And from their standpoint, he and his partner, the partner did the inside, he did the outside. So they developed processes and systems and hired people and et cetera. And, and during the course of my conversation, we started talking about the training piece. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I told them how to do this. And I assume that they, since I told it to them, they knew how to do it. And we started to laugh a little bit because just because you did it doesn't mean they're going to stick with it. So one of the hardest things is having your leadership team understand that the people that are below you don't have the same internal ingredients that you do. And so the training program has to have the capacity to address the roadblocks that people are going to have when they're actually doing the training and utilizing it and applying it. Mm-hmm. Right? If, if 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 not, heck, I could write a book. You could write books like you have and great books, and people could read the book. And next thing you know, they should be able to do whatever they need to do. So you know, if, if zero time selling, they'd read it and they'd be like, okay, I got it. Right? But that's not how it works. So you really have to make sure that when you put some training in there, the reinforcement's in place, the management team knows how to reinforce it, the management team knows how to coach to it, and more importantly, the management team needs to understand how to coach through these attitudinal limitations that people have so you can change the people. If you don't change them, the stickiness is very low.
0: So one of the things companies are trying to do to address that is we see these new mobile apps coming out, uh, like Mind Tickle and others that that address sort of what I call contextual training, right? You know, supposedly a rep right in advance of doing a, a sales call or something can bring up the app and and understand, get some tips in terms of what they should be doing in the situation they're about to confront uh, mm-hmm. with with the sales rep. How are you seeing that working? Because it's it's interesting because it gives it gives I know managers like it because it gives them dashboards gives them data they can look at uh, in some cases like I referenced MindTickle that's an app that enables a, a manager to see how sales ready based on progress through a curriculum how sales ready a rep is before they deploy them to the field
1: yeah yeah and, and sales ready may be their competency right how well do they know this how well do they have the competencies to own this and if you look at a lot of the apps that are out there today, a lot of the apps are very similar in terms of context of pre-call plans, KPIs for a sales call, um, what are your must-haves, here are the tactics that you need to uncover to do those, and that's great. It's the same as doing a pre-call plan previously. You know, Listen, if you take an airplane, you look at a pilot, they go through 35 steps or 50 steps before they take the plane off. And they do it every single time, and it's written down. It's never done by memory. Mm -hmm. We go on sales calls, we wing it all the time. So when we take a look at a pre-call plan, it's a great idea. Paper, app, right? It's just the same mindset. It's just done in higher tech, you know, from a technology standpoint. But it still goes back to if I have a pre-call plan or if I have the ability, like you said, of the sales readiness, which is pipeline management, which most people do an awful job at understanding how to really utilize a pipeline. They just throw a whole bunch of stuff in there to protect your job.
0: Well, the sales sales readiness, in fairness, is a little bit different. Sales readiness is... Is the individual not the prospect? Is the individual ready to sell? Yes, yes, their competency, the
1: competency, right? Yeah, yep. So it's a report card in essence, and their their ability to ready to get out in the field. Exactly. So, which is great, and. There's a lot of apps out there in terms of uh, ones that will record the actual sales calls and you can pivot and you know, push certain buttons to know when you did a certain move so the manager can come back and really see it in Memorex versus being there. I mean, there's great technology out there that help with the reinforcement. But going back to the core issue is, is unfortunately, most managers, when they see someone not knowing what to do, they automatically go to this is how you do it, which is the knowledge. The problem is, it's not a knowledge problem. The individual chose not to utilize that skill in that situation because they were afraid, or they forgot to. Mm-hmm. They forgot to because they panicked. When they panic, you do self-talk. When you do self-talk, you stop listening to anything but inside your head. Right. So, right. So, if you have those individuals that still have that, then now maybe your sales readiness will have the ability to prep that. But that that. Piece of it is one of the biggest things that's missing in management development, sales development, and really leadership is is that stickiness, and that's the reason that most training doesn't work, regardless if it's classroom, right, if it's uh, distant learning. I mean, we have a huge amount of clients that do distant learning with us um, and do other forms of technology with with training, but it still comes back to the fundamentals of will they actually apply it?
0: Got it. Got it. Okay. So I got one pet question I'm going to ask, and then we're going to finish this part of the conversation and go to the last segment of the show. Is why do reps still need to be reminded that it's all about the customer? (laughs) Um,
1: It's interesting. So Sandler has a rule called being eye centered. And if you look at a salesperson's uh, developmental framework, and in my world, we, the third phase is that they're a high-end producer, and a high-end producer to get there has insulated themselves from fear of rejection and all those other things by really putting themselves almost like a, like a, a castle right there in the middle of it, and you have a moat around yourself, and the moat is being eye-centered. And that means that you've been down this road a lot. You've seen the same stuff. Why am I going to have to qualify someone? I already know what the problems are. I already know what the solutions are, so let me just tell it to them. And again, it's being eye-centered. right? So Andy, I'm going to turn around and say, well, let me tell you what you should do, or let me tell you what's happening. And they also start to turn around and say, especially if they've been successful, is what are you doing for me? And that's more towards the company. right? Mm -hmm. I have value here. What are you doing for me? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And their mindset is the world revolves around them. They're the sun. They're the epicenter, right? That eye-centeredness is what's the beginning. That unfortunately, that got him to be successful, but it's also the major roadblock that holds him back from getting to the next level, right? Which is really the ultimate salesperson.
0: Exactly.
1: And you're you're right. It's you know seventy percent of all your interviews or all your sales calls should be listening, not talking.
0: Yeah, it's funny. You would think after all these years of sales, that should start being sort of like. In the DNA of people that we hire, that they should understand that. But anyway, <laughs> that's that's what keeps people yeah. like you employed. So I move down to the last segment of the show, where I've got standard questions I ask all my guests. And in the first question, that's a really hypothetical scenario. And in the scenario, you, Glenn, have just been hired as a VP of sales at a company whose sales have stalled out, and the CEO, the board, they're anxious to get sales back on track. And you know, we know Rome wasn't built in a day. Sales doesn't turn around in a day, but but you're in charge. And what two steps could you take your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact?
1: Well, I think the, f- the first two steps is investigating what you did successfully and what's changed in the marketplace. So if they were successful, either the market, yourself, the product, something's happened that changed it. So the first really is, is investigative work. And the two places that I would investigate would be people and process. And when you take a look at the people, there's obviously an awful lot there, Andy, to take a look at. Um, but process, it's also inside process. is your sales process, your follow-up, your marketing, your onboarding of clients. There's a litany of other areas within process. But most problems I've ever f- had to uncover is historically in one of those two areas, either on why they're not being as successful as they should be, or how come we were knocking the cover off the ball, and now we're not. And right. usually, those two areas are the areas I would focus in on first.
0: how do we how did we lose the recipe? <sighs> People think they're smarter than they are, well, right? not but i th- I think that's when I work with clients in advisory roles that is that is oftentimes the problem. you know i yeah. I focus on companies that are sort of hundred million dollars and less that I work with. CEOs bring me in. And it's like, yeah, we were doing great, but it's just like I don't know what happened, yep <laughs> and. Yeah, they've lost the recipe. They've they stopped the focus on the fundamentals they need to have to really just sort of execute. So, good answer. Okay. So, now I got some rapid fire questions. You can give me one word answers or elaborate if you wish. The first one is when you, Glenn, are out selling your services, what's your most powerful sales attribute?
1: Be two things my ears and my ability to ask the right questions.
0: Excellent. Who's your sales role model? Hmm.
1: I would probably turn around and say the mentor that started the business would be David Sandler.
0: So, other than a Sandler book, what's one book that every salesperson should read?
1: Scripts People Live By. Who's it written by? It is written by Claudia Steiner, which is a a person that worked with Eric Byrne. Um, I think one of the things that most people miss is understanding human dynamics, understanding people when they sell, and that's one of the, the most important pieces of a salesman's attributes. Is understanding people. And I think the Scripts People Live By is probably one of the best books that's an operational manual on human beings.
0: Excellent. Okay. And last question for you is what music's on your playlist?
1: <laughs> I'm an old school rock and roll guy. So I'm uh I'm this in a late sixties, seventies, eighties kind of guy with uh rock and roll. So
0: give me an example.
1: Uh, everything from Skinner to DCTC to okay. Led Zeppelin to, yeah.
0: All right. Yep. Just wanted to hear that ACDC. That's still on the top of the list of, uh, yeah. gosh, over 250 answers we've had so far. That's still the most popular. <laughs> yeah. So good. Well, Glenn, I want to thank you for being on the show. It's been great. To tell folks how they can find out more about you.
1: You got it. Appreciate it, Andy. Uh, if you want to have more information about what we do and and how we help companies achieve at least a thirty to fifty percent rate of increase of at least an ROI, the two different areas you can try us at is is one is the website, which is www.matson.sandler.com. which is spelled M-A-T-T-S-O-N. dot sandler s a n d l e r dot com. Or obviously, you can call our office directly anytime you want to. It's relatively easy. The prefix is 631, and it's Sandler, which numerically comes out to 726-3537. And as always, they can always email me at at sandler.com
0: Excellent. Again, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And one easy way to do that is to subscribe to this podcast, Accelerate, make it a part of your daily routine, whether you listen on your commute in the gym or as part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Glenn Matson, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your sales. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show.